0: Where we are going today, uh, we started talking about this last week. Big picture, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount and what it means for us and how to live our lives as kingdom people in kingdom community. And last week, uh, we began this sort of sermon within a sermon talking about what does it mean for us to be a multi-ethnic, multiracial, multicultural community. And I said last week that it was going to get kind of uncomfortable. Today is going to get a little bit more uncomfortable. And it's progressively going to get uncomfortable for the next two weeks. I said this last week. Every time I preach on this, people leave. And mostly it's white and Asians. I don't know why that is. But mostly white and Asian. <laughs> Kenny, get up and say hi. Hello. That's the man with the... I, okay, thanks Kenny. Um, I, don't, I don't know what that is. <laughs> No, man, see, see, you made them even more uncomfortable now, see, <laughs> by doing that, okay? Um, Pastor Mike, I'm going to need your help again. Can you turn off the lights from that? back? This is news in the last couple months. And if you're paying attention, this is our world. First slide, please. Dunkin' Donuts is worried America will run from Dunkin' Donuts over a controversial ad by this Thai franchise. The ad, which has run in print on TV and on the web, features a woman in a black face makeup to promote Thai outlets' new chocolate-flavored charcoal donut, the AP reports. The New York-based group Human Rights Watch denounced the ad as both bizarre and racist and called on Duncans for its immediate withdrawal. The company says it's trying. We're working with that Thailand franchise to immediately pull the ad. Duncannonis recognizes the sensitivity of this spot. The company repeatedly tweeted those complaining on Twitter. But the company's CEO in Thailand says the criticism is just paranoid American thinking. It's absolutely ridiculous, says Nadim Salhani. We're not allowed to use black to promote our donuts? I don't get it. What's the big fuss? What if the product was white and I painted someone white? Would that be racist? The unexpected kicker, the model featured in the ad campaign, is none other than his daughter. I'm sorry, he says, but this is a marketing campaign and it's working very well for us. Next slide, please. A Jackie Robinson statue in Brooklyn has been targeted by vandals who used a black marker to scribble racial slurs and a swastika on the monument. The graffiti includes the N-word as well as anti-Semitic comments, Please said. The statue, which features fellow player Pee Wee Reese putting his arm around Robinson, stands outside Brooklyn Cyclones Minor League Stadium in Coney Island. The statue commemorates a moment in 1947 when Robinson faced a crowd yelling racial slurs. Reese, shortstop, headed to Robinson at first base and put his arm around him, silencing the crowd. Next slide, please. North Carolina's Almanac County Sheriff Terry S. Johnson is at the center of a skating Justice Department report which alleges that he and his deputies routinely targeted Latinos at traffic stops in a deeply rooted culture of discrimination. According to the report, Johnson told his deputies to screen Latino motorists and arrest them for minor traffic infractions to run immigrant checks while letting white drivers off with the warning. (laughs) If you stop a Mexican, don't write a citation, but arrest him. Johnson is quoted as instructing deputies. He then attempted to cover it up by reporting many of the Latinos in the county jail as black. The report goes on to cite some nasty quotes from Johnson. Among them, he referred to Latinos as taco eaters who were prone to drinking and dealing drugs. The, reference, the report references a 2007 quote from a newspaper in which Johnson said, In Mexico, there's nothing wrong with having sex with a 12-year-old girl. Next slide, please. Mary and Barry. Finally, sort of apologized today after coming under a hail of criticism for comment disparaging Asian business owners. We're not going to do, uh, we've got to do something about these Asians coming in and opening up businesses and dirty shops. They ought to go, the fourth time mayor of Washington, D.C. said. The remarks have drawn uh, criticism and condemnation from other community leaders. But Barry, struck by his comments through days of blistering criticism, asked by the Washington Post why he'd singled out Asians, he replied, because that's the reality. Who owns these little restaurants? Who owns them? You know, Asians. He also tweeted an image of somewhat run-down Chinese restaurant with the caption, We can do a better job. Next slide, please. As Italy's first black minister, Cecilia Uh, Kenge spoke at a party rally Friday. A listener hurled bananas at her, the BBC reports. Police are seeking the person who tossed the fruit, which barely missed the integration minister. Fellow politician slammed the incident, but it's not an isolated one. The Senate's own vice president from the Anti-Immigration Northern League Party recently compared Kenge to an orangutan. Roberto Calderoli apologized and said he planned to send her flowers. Because, you know, that makes it better. Earlier, a Northern League party member suggested on Facebook that Kenya, who is from the Democratic Republic of Congo, should be raped so she understands the crimes immigrants perpetrate. For her part, Kenge called the banana attack a waste of food. I love that. Noting that the courage and optimism to change things has to come above all from the bottom up to reach the institutions. Um, I have a couple more. Is that Okay. Next one, please. Oberlin canceled classes today after a person was sent a scene near the Ohio College's African Heritage House in Ku Klux Klan style robes. The appearance follows a month of hate messages around campus, including Black History Month posters defaced with the N-word and whites only written above water fountain homophobic and anti-semitic vandalism has also appeared today the school will hold a series of discussions about the issue including a teaching and a demonstration of solidarity as well as convoc- uh, convocation with the theme we stand together next one five southern mississippi band members have been dropped from the group following an offensive chant at a game the students have lost their scholarships and will have sensitivity training after they targeted kansas state's angel rodriguez shouting where's your green card man where's your green card Next. White Caucasian pastries, $2. Black African pastries, 75 cents. Native American pastries, only a quarter. Such was the pricing scheme for a sarcastic increased diversity bake sale posted on Facebook by a Republican group at UC Berkeley reports, the San Francisco Chronicle. Planned for Tuesday, the sale has sparked anger on campus for its snarky opposition to a bill that would let California universities consider ethnicity in student admissions. If you don't come, you're a racist to possess. I'm ashamed to know that I go to the same school with people who would say stuff like this, responded one student on Facebook. I'm really trying to figure out how someone can be this hateful. More than 200 wrote posts in awe, most of them opposed, and the vice president of the school's student government called on the sale. Frankly, it's racist. The president of Berkeley College, Republican Fireback, fire back, but it's discriminatory in the same way that considering race in university admissions is discriminatory. Next. Racism is alive and well in America, apparently among black people. Or at least that's what a lot of Americans apparently believe, according to a new Rasmussen poll. The poll found that 35, 37% of Americans believe that most blacks are racist, while only 15% that this, of, said of the same of whites, and 18% said the same of Hispanics. Among whites, 10% think most whites are racist, 38% say most blacks are racist, and 17% think most Hispanics are racist. Among blacks, 31% say most blacks are racist, 24% say most whites are racist, and 15% say most Hispanics are racist. Next, please. A Mississippi couple says the church where they plan to get married turned them away because they're black. Charles and Teandra Wilson say they had their date set and mailed invitations. But the day before the wedding, they say they got bad news from the pastor of the predominantly white First Baptist Church of Crystal Springs. Some members of the church complained that the black couple having a wedding there was inappropriate. Next, please. (laughs) This I love. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. If you haven't heard the phrase, hipster racism or ironic racism, being thrown around of late, allow Lindsay West to educate you with an epic explainer and takedown on Jezebel. I I totally want you to look it up. It's, you know, introducing your black friend as, hey, my black friend. as a joke! To show everybody how totally not preoccupied you are with your black friend's blackness, she writes. In short, it's white people think educated middle-class white people joking about racism to, you know, prove that they're above it. Whisk breaks down the various ways it manifests itself, including cute white girls making gang symbols. Ironically, of course. Then there's recreational slumming in which privileged people uh, bravely venture into a bar in the scary part of town. Catchphrase, it's so ghetto, but I actually totally like it. There's much more. And she says, it should all stop quickly. It should all stop quickly. And then lastly, a white Mississippi teenager who murdered a black man because of the color of his skin has received two life sentences after pleading guilty to killing the victim by driving over him with his pickup in a hate crime. Authorities say Daryl Dedman, 19 years old, was part of a group of rural teens who decided to drive to Jackson. To attack black people after a night of drinking last summer. The gang found auto worker James Craig Anderson, forty seven years old, and beat him up before Deadman ran him over. And other teens in the group are expected to face charges for that attack and others Notes it's AP. Next slide please. I think another thing that we need to stop saying is that we live in a post racial America. I think we need to stop saying that. Just objectively speaking. um, This is the country you and I live in, most of us. Next slide, please. You saw this last week. Not long ago, people said that globalization and the revolution in communication technology would bring us all together, but the opposite is true. People are taking advantage of freedom and technology to create new groups and cultural zones. People are moving into self-segregated communities with people like themselves and building invisible and sometimes visible barriers to keep strangers out. 40 million Americans move every year and they generally move in with people like themselves. Crunchy places like Boulder attract crunchy types and become crunchier. Conservative places like suburbia Georgia attract conservatives and become more so. Here's the map of our country. Next. Every single dot Color represents one single person in America. Blue dot represents white people. Green dots represent black people. Red dot represents Asians. Yellow dot represents Hispanics. Brown dots represent other Native Americans and multiracial. Next slide, please. Broken down, this is Utah, Salt Lake City. Next slide, please. This is LA. Next slide, please. This is Detroit. Next slide, please. This is Washington, D.C. Next slide, please. This is New York, New Jersey. Do you see a pattern? Next slide, please. This is your city, Chicago. Next slide, please. And this is our church. (laughs) 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 <laughs> I'm calling you out black people in the front pew I'm calling you out Asians in the middle pew I'm calling you out black. <laughs> 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 thank you very much thank you very much yeah <laughs> Really uncomfortable yet. <laughs> Pastor Michael, you could, you could come out and have fun. Pastor Michael, please come out and join us. Missing out all the fun. Go ahead and turn on the lights. Thank you. i show you one more statistic that breaks my heart. In 2000, 20% of churches in America are multi-ethnic. Today, it's down to 14 And then Jesus says, next slide please, you are a city on a hill. You are a city within a city. You are a city that's radically different from the rest of the city. You are a group of people who have entered the kingdom of God, which means when the rule and reign of the kingdom and the king comes into your life, it changes everything about you. It changes everything about you. And one of the ways that it fundamentally changes you is that it changes the way you relate and the way you have relationships and the way you do community and life with people in your city. We know what the city of Chicago looks like out there. You see the map. We know the reality, but the question is, are we any different? This looks great. This looks beautiful. But the question is, are we actually fooling ourselves into thinking that because we are just present here on Sunday, and we sit amongst a group of people that represent the diversity of God's kingdom, that somehow we are living our lives as citizens of this kingdom. That somehow just by being here, being present, that it's living into this reality that we are actually reflecting a countercultural life. My fear, my fear, it is a fear, not just concern, fear has been and always is. That somehow we would come to church on Sunday. And that we will self-segregate while we are here. And that we would self-segregate once we leave. And we never ever do the hard work of reconciliation, authentic relationships that go beyond superficial and token friendships that the rest of the culture so much knows about. Are we any different? Here's the question I asked last week. And here's the question I'm going to ask again. Can you identify ways in which you have been fundamentally changed as a direct result of your interactions with people of different ethnicity and culture? Can you identify a fundamental way in which you can say, my relationship with you and all of who you are has changed me to be more like Christ? I'm not asking, do you have coffee? I'm not asking, do you go out to eat? I'm not asking, do you talk on the phone? I'm not asking, do you Facebook message each other? I'm asking because of the intimacy, the depth, and the authenticity of those relationships. Can you say, I am a different person today than I was six months ago, a year ago? Or are we, boy, isn't this beautiful? And then our friendships, our relationships, and the depth of it looks more like self-segregation than a picture of the kingdom. And you better believe that this is about the gospel. You better believe that this is about the gospel. Because as we have seen, and we'll continue to see for the next couple weeks, in Ephesians 2 and 3, Paul makes this explicit claim. The work of Christ was not just to reconcile you to God. That's half the gospel. It was to reconcile you to each other and reconcile you to God's purposes in the world. The reconciliation work of God was not just to save us from our sins, to be forgiven and go to heaven. It was so that the broken and the messed up humanity that we see in our world today with racism, ethnocentrism, hate, oppression, and injustice, that that world could look at a group of people and say, there's something fundamentally different about them. There's something beautiful. There's something amazing. Look at that. What is that? What makes them that way? And then we could point to the cross and say, the work of the cross. The work of Jesus it wasn't just to reconcile me to God it was reconciling me to you and you and you do you know why this is so 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 important today I mean I could have gone on for the next two hours reading new stories and showing you maps this is the country the city we live in and they are distant looking for a reality and a tangible, substantive testimony of the gospel. But the question that I have is, before we could tell them to believe the gospel, we have to demonstrate in our life together that the gospel is true. Before we could point them to say, believe the gospel, we must believe it ourselves by how we live with each other. Is it any wonder that people look at the church, the gospel, or Jesus these days and go, why would I be interested in that? D.A. Carson, one of my professors at Trinity, described the church perfectly this way he said the church is made up of natural enemies what ultimately binds us together is not common education common race common income levels common politics common nationality common accents common jobs or anything else of that sort christians come together because they have all been saved by jesus christ they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for the sake of jesus and two thousand years ago something amazing happened that changed the world a group of people that had never been seen. Only two races existed at the time, the Gentiles and the Jews, and a third race came up. People were like, what the heck is that? A third race of people. And they were derisively called a third race by the larger Roman world because they couldn't explain what they were saying as they saw a Jew and Gentile arm in arm walking to the grocery store as they saw a slave and a master walking arm in arm into the homes to break bread, and as they saw hated enemies raising their children together, people literally needed to come up with the third category because they couldn't put them in categories that existed at the time. I asked this before, and I'm going to ask again: Why are you here? Why are we here? Why are we serious about this today? um, Oh, I just... Oh, (laughs) I always bite off more than I can chew. And today I'm going to go very quickly because um, the passage we're going to look at. Is a passage that is foundational to this journey. Again, we're just building blocks. We're building blocks. We're not answering all the questions. It's the passage called the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Are you familiar with that? Okay, we're going to look at that passage. Turn your Bible to Genesis 11 and what that passage has to say about this journey as we move forward. Again, we're just building blocks, building blocks, building blocks. Genesis 11.1, 1. now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Hang on to that. As people moved eastward. They bl- they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with the tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they begin, to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Verse 7, come let us go down and confuse the language so they will not understand. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. Verse 9, that is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. How many of us have heard sermons on this passage? Raise your hands really high. Really high. What is this passage about? Scattering? Anybody else? Diversity? Anybody else? Disobedience? Anybody else? Pride, right. arrogance, the way that this passage is typically taught, and i have guilty of that too at one time, was to say this. The humanity was attempting to be like God and trying to make a name for themselves. So as God's judgment and as, as a curse, God what? God comes down, creates multiple languages, and then scatters them across the face of the earth, where presumably from there came different language, different culture, different nationalities, and different people groups. So the lesson is avoid the sin of pride. Avoid the sin of arrogance. Know your place. Be humble before God. Don't make a name for yourself. Let God give you a name. Otherwise, you will be judged for the sin of pride and be scattered. How many of us are familiar with that narrative? Yeah, yeah, majority of us. Here's the problem. When you take that rationale, then what you wind up with is this, that somehow human distinctions That language, culture, and even nations are the result of God's judgment. And even more problematic is the idea that the continuing diversity of language, culture, and ethnicity is a result of God's curse. If you've never heard this passage before, you're actually in a really good spot. Because for a lot of us, it's undoing what we heard that I think will be more of the challenge today by the way taken even further and this is where the church just has jacked up in its history some people have taken this passage and a misreading of it to reinforce an incredibly dangerous and destructive racist apologetic by suggesting that certain people groups were inferior to others and that they were destined for a life of slavery it's called the curse of ham And relegate entire groups of people to say you were, and these are Christians and pastors who propagated this racist apologetic to say so. Therefore, your entire life ought to be one of slavery. So let me ask you a question: If you've heard that before, are human differences, languages, ethnicity, culture a result of God's curse? Small problem with that is the word curse or judgment is nowhere found in Genesis 11. Look very carefully. You don't find it. And furthermore, is diversity a residue of this curse? And furthermore, there are over 6,500 languages all over the world. 6,500 languages. Are all those languages essentially a monument to sin? Once you begin looking at the whole of scripture, you realize, wow, that reading of this text is not only misleading, but it's dangerous, but it's unbiblical because right away it becomes problematic because how do you, how do you look at all the positive references to diversity of language and ethnic groups and culture found in the Bible? Acts 2, we looked at it last week, and we're gonna look at it in a couple more weeks. In Acts 2, when God decides that he's gonna send the Spirit and he's going to finally communicate the message of the Messiah to the rest of the world, what does he do? He uses Mono-ethnic, monocultural Jews to communicate in known languages at the time. God decides to use a diversity of languages to communicate the saving message of Jesus Christ. Secondly, what do you do with passages like Revelation 7, 9, 10? There I looked, and there before me was a great multitude from every tribe, nation, people, and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a preview of the reconciled church. It's a preview of humanity reconciled and healed. And what do you see? You don't see a mono-ethnic, monolithic group. You see each of the ethnic groups, its distinctions remaining, speaking, worshiping God in their own language. What's going on in Genesis 11? And why is it so critical for us to understand? When you interpret the Bible, you need to do two things. You need to look at the context before you look at the specific text. Quick question What comes before Genesis 11? Genesis. Oh, you're with me today. Okay, Genesis 10. Okay. I'm just kidding. Genesis 10, Genesis 11, Genesis 12. Let's look at Genesis 10, 11, 12 real quick, real quick, real quick. Look at Genesis 10. Genesis ten, known as the Table of Nations, it is the reestablishment of human human race through Noah's descendants after the flood. Okay, it's essentially a genealogy that lists all the descendants of Noah through his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And here's what we find in verse five. You ready? From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, which its what own language. So before Genesis 11, there keep going, verse 20, these are the sons of Ham by their clans and, say it with me, languages and their territories. So before Genesis 11, verse 31, these are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. And verse 32, these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent with their nations. And from these, the nations spread out over the earth after, after the flood. So, if you are tracking today, before Genesis 11, before Babel, humanity is described in the Bible by their clans, by their language, by their territories, by their nations. There is a diversity of nation, people groups, culture, and language. Before, are you tracking so far? Okay, okay. So, so immediately we run into the whole curse and resulted in difference of languages, but. Two things before we move on real quick. One, the Bible nowhere distinguished the people by their skin color or physical appearance. You need to hear this. The Bible consistently calls them people groups rather than races. The term race as we know it is not a biblical concept. God creates one race, calls it the human race. And he says, from that, he distinguishes them, yes, according to skin color and facial distinctions, but he continues to call them, the Bible continues to refer to them as people, groups, nations. Second thing you need to notice is that in the midst of all this beautiful diversity, the Bible, the author of Genesis, is pushing you to notice something. You know what that is? He's saying, even though there's beautiful diversity, there is oneness, there's commonality. Why? Why? Genesis 10 is a genealogy. What is a genealogy? Genealogy tells you who is related to who. The author of Genesis is saying there's a beautiful diversity of language and culture, but fundamentally there's an interrelatedness about all of humanity. There is a Oneness, in fundamental interdependence of humanity in a profound sense you are brothers and in a profound sense you are sisters in a profound sense there is a commonality that binds you together as one that is way more powerful than even the beautiful diversity of language, culture, land. Are you hearing me? What happened on 9-11-2001? What happened to this country? After the attacks, here's what happened. Muslims, Jews, atheists, Christians, black, white, Asian, what? Got together and began to share. Began to care. Didn't even even matter if you were strangers. And began to, check this out, experience community. And community fundamentally comes from the common root word to have in common. And on that Today, people realize i have much more in common with you with you with you with you with you than i could even imagine the author of genesis going there's a fundament and if you can't you can't read the old testament without noticing this isaiah 58 isaiah 50 he says what he says the poor the broken the marginalized they are your f- flesh and blood blood relatives He says there's a relatedness, and interrelatedness about you that you don't recognize. I wonder what would happen if if just this simple truth, diversity as God's means with one race, and then secondly, a fundamental relatedness, a fundamental interrelatedness. I want you to see how people like Darden, Martin Luther King Jr. and others that this was foundational to how they viewed the world. We are bound together by a single garment of destiny. What's he saying? What's he saying? Do you realize the interrelatedness that we have together? That goes beyond our differences. Before Genesis 11, there's diversity, language, culture, according to nations, And the writer of Genesis speaks positively, you guys, about the spreading out of these descendants. And here's a big million-dollar question. Why, 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 why does this happen? And I'm sorry, what was your name again, nice lady? She said, it's about scattering. I'm like, how did you know? That's what it's about. The reason why we see Genesis 1 through 10 is because God says in Genesis 1, that's what I want you to do. Let me show you. I want you to scatter. Genesis 1:28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. So change this with me. Ready? Fill the earth and subdue it. God creates the world, and it's called the cultural Or the creation mandate. He says, I want you to fill the earth. I want you to spread out. I want you to scatter and be a blessing to the rest of the world. Scattering, filling the earth is neither negative nor punishment. It's God's mandate for humanity. And this theme continues. Genesis 9. Let's look at it to Noah after the flood. God God blessed Noah and his son saying to them, multiply and fill the earth being blessed and being a blessing. Same command given originally to Adam and Eve before the fall. Continuity of God's plan. One more, Genesis 9, 7. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Before Genesis 11, linguistic, cultural, national diversity are not the result of some curse or divine judgment but it's a part of God's mandate. And God says, go. He affirms a multilingual, multinational humanity as good intention. He says, go. And then when we come to Genesis 11, we've gone from multiple languages to one language. We've gone from scatter all over the earth to we have settled in one place. They have literally and figuratively This is important. Resurrected walls and barriers in a self-serving effort to maintain a safe, homogenous existence at the expense of God's mandate to go out. And the question is why? Why? Hang on to that. Because God doesn't give up His original plan. After the debacle of Babel, God picks a man and his family, and then he says this. This is Genesis 12 now. Check this out. Genesis 12 verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 10, diverse, scattered, filling. Genesis 11, one language, safe, homogenous. Genesis 12, God says, my plans for a world has not changed. I'm going to choose a man his family, and I'm going to bless him, and I'm going to send him out. I'm going to scatter him to all the nations of the world so they would be blessed. Let's just pause for a moment and think about this. Abram is rightly known as a man of obedience, a man, a man of faith, because he obeyed God. But look for a moment and think, what was Abraham's obedience about? Here's what it was about obedience for Abraham meant Abraham, I want you to leave your family, your culture your people groups everything that you know everything that you're familiar with Abraham, you're going to be a man of faith and obedience for a man of faith like you is going to entail that you leave the familiar for the unfamiliar that you leave the comfortable for that which causes tremendous discomfort can I just Pause for a moment and say this. This might be the exact thing that God is calling some of us to do today. God says, man of faith, I want to be a man of faith because obedience. I want to obey. To Abraham, here's what obedience means for you. Leave everything that's familiar to you for that which is unfamiliar. Leave everything that is comfortable for you and safe for you and pursue that is uncomfortable And that might not be the most safe thing. Here's what it might mean for some of us today. Disciples of Jesus Christ don't go, God, show me where to go. Because when we say, God, show me where to go, essentially what we're really saying is, God, I would love some clarity about what I like to do, and once I find out, I'll decide if I want to do it or not. (laughs) A disciple of Jesus Christ says, Lord, the answer is yes. Now, where did you want me to go? Let me say it again. Lord, the answer is yes. Where do you want me to go? You know what God might do? God might point you to India and go. Say go. Oh, God might point you down the street. God, the answer is yes. Where do you want me to go? God might point you to Africa. Oh, God might point you to that Nigerian neighbor down the street that you've never gotten a chance to know. Are you, are you hearing me? For those of us that are in a safe, homogenous... Com- can I just... Can I can, 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 can I... can I just... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can I just say this? Can I just say this? Does anybody else find that it is very difficult to grow spiritually when we are comfortable and things are easy and things are very familiar? Does anybody else find that to be true? Why is that? I'll tell you why it is. Because... Faith was meant to be exercised in order for it to grow. And the thing that God might do for some of us, for us to exercise our faith, might be a swift kick in the butt to go, I want you to leave that which is so comfortable, that's so familiar, and that's so easy. And that might mean staying in Chicago. For some of us, that might mean leaving. That might mean staying at your job. Some of us, it might be leaving the job. But the determining factor, if you are a follower of Jesus, cannot be. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there because it's uncomfortable, inconvenient, and costly. Last time I checked, convenience and comfort are not biblical values. Self-sacrifice and self-denial are biblical values. How many of us today are just dead spiritually? And it's because you are safe, you are comfortable. It's a life of ease. How many of us sitting here today and we're struggling spiritually because we have chosen and embraced and pursued a life of comfort, life of convenience, life of ease? I'm not going to tell you what's uncomfortable, what's not easy, what's inconvenient. God will speak to you. But for a lot of us, a lot of us, you know where it begins? It's not just geographically moving, it's not just about leaving. a lot of us is look at your relationships right now. Are you safe? Are you comfortable? Is it easy? Look at your relationships. Is anybody, is anybody, truly stretching you? And you're sitting there going, "This is hard. This is uncomfortable. This is inconvenient." And Jesus says, "Welcome to discipleship." Are your relationships and the people that you know safe, comfortable, convenient, easy? I don't know why I'm shouting. You guys know why I'm shouting. I shout when I preach to myself. Nobody does much for God if they live where they want to live. What? Nobody does much for God if you live where you want to live. And you're going, that's not always true. You guys know that. Nobody does much for God if they they want to live. With, what do I mean? It's too comfortable. It's too comfortable. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I need you to go. I need you to go. I'm going to use you. I need you to go. But here's what it'll mean. You're going to leave out your family. You're going to leave your people. You're going to leave your culture. You're going to leave everything that's comfortable about you. And you're going to go to a place where you're not going to be known. You're not going to know anybody. It's scary, God. I know. It might not be the most comfortable, but you'll be the most useful. Jesus, Jesus, man, talk about (laughs) comfort of heaven. you kidding me? Praise and adoration of the angels. Jesus, I need you to go. Go where? There. Come again. Come again. Why? Ephesians 2. Philippians 2. Leave the comforts of this. Praise and adoration of heaven and the angels to take on human flesh and bone and to enter into messed up, broken humanity. Is that what God is calling you to do? Is that what God is calling me to do? How is God calling you to leave home? How is God calling you to leave home? How is God calling you to leave home? Let's quickly move on. Centuries go by. Before he departs, Jesus gathers disciples. What was his message to him? You know what his message is? Scatter. (laughs) Biblically, it's what? Going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the earth. That's his word to them. Scatter. (laughs) Scatter. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, the sound like a blowing violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. By the way, if you think this passage about speaking in tongues, you are completely missing the point. Now there were saying in Jerusalem, God fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? We hear them declaim the wonders of God in our own tongues. And amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? This is not, as some people have said, a reversal of Babel. It's the fulfillment of Babel. Did you catch that? It's God going, I'm going to do what I intended all along. I A group of people. I'm going to scatter them, fill them to the end of the earth. Because the gospel message is meant to go through every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And what I promised to Abraham when I called him to create. Listen to this. Oh, this is so powerful. I'm going to create a new family, see? And this family, Abraham, will include all the nations, tribe, and tongue. This family, Abraham will consist of uncles and aunts and dads and moms and kids from all nation, race and ethnicity and culture. This family, Abraham, will be a model to the rest of the world what a, a, a new community should look like, a new society should look like. This new family. And God creates this in the church. But the church didn't get it. No, no sir, no sir. What do they do? What do they do? They became, come on, bro. Come on, bro. Come on, come on, sis. Are you a Jew? Are you a Jew? Yeah, come on, come on, come on. Come on. Are you Jew? Come on, come on. And what does God do? God goes, ain't going to have that son. And he says, what? Look at this. This is so cool. You guys maybe never noticed this. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were what? Hello! Throughout the, you know what the message is? You don't want to be persecuted? You better scatter. I'm not kidding. This is what it means. Throughout today and Samaria, those who have been, say it with me, scattered, preached the word wherever they went. Verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and preached the word there. Acts eleven nineteen? not those who have been, what? Scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. Traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word, and a great number believed. How does God deal with their unwillingness to go to all the nations in his mercy and grace? God says, what? I'm going to scatter you. Are you comfortable? Are you safe? Are you, oh, this is really easy. Maybe the most loving thing that God can do is to go, "Ah, how about some persecution? Can I get an amen? Amen. See, in the American church, you mentioned there were persecution. People are like, oh, no. (laughs) Rest of the world, you mentioned there were persecution, and people go, the seed of the martyrs is what God used to raise the church. Persecution always precedes revival. Always. Amen. Can I say it again? Persecu I didn't even, I wouldn't even plan to say that. It's not even on my manuscript. Persecution. Listen, persecution always precedes revival, and that's not just corporate, it's also individual. Again, are you safe? Are you comfortable? Life of ease? Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. So, what the heck happened in Babel? Let's look at that one more time. Verse four. Let us make a name for ourselves. Read it with me. So that we will not be scattered. Okay, I gotta kinda get in your grill. Okay, so. Come on, Kenny. Scholars have focused on the sin of pride. I think there's a more nuanced version of that, and that is their unwillingness to fulfill the, the mandate of God to say, fill the earth. But what motivated their need for power? One word. Fear. Fear. Fear of what? Fear of being scattered. Fear of being scattered. Fear of leaving that which is comfortable, safe, and homogenous. And anytime I want to feel smart, I read Walter Brueggemann. I think that's his name. Michael, is that how you pronounce it? Okay, Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar. Pick up anything that he's written. This is what he says about this text. The fear of scattering resistance to God's purpose for creation. The people do not wish to spread abroad, but want to stay in their own safe mode of homogeneity. They try to surround themselves with walls made of strong bricks and tower for protection against the world around them. This unity attempts to establish a cultural human oneness without God. This is a self-made unity in which humanity has a fortress mentality. It seeks to survive by its own resources. It is a unity grounded in fear and characterized by coercion. A human unity without the vision of God's will is likely to be ordered in oppressive conformity. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like some of the churches we grew up in for crying out loud. Psychologists say that the number one way we respond when we're afraid is avoidance. We avoid people and places that cause anxiety. Anybody relate to that? All of us do. Do you know why we don't welcome diversity into our lives? Because it causes fear. Because it causes anxiety. And when we're fearful and anxiety, we realize we're going to be disrupted out of our cozy patterns, We're going to be exposed in our incompetencies and it's going to be uncomfortable. Five days in Colombia, five days in Colombia, I walk around going, I'm not very smart. (laughs) I'm not a very good speaker. Five days in Colombia, I don't know what to do. (laughs) This is foreign to me and this is extremely uncomfortable. And who likes feeling incompetent? I don't quite get it. I'm not quite with it. That's why we cling to that which is familiar. We cling to that which we know. And we cling to that which is comfortable. Here's the thing about Christian faith, though we're not called to fear. Amen? What is the constant refrain throughout Scripture is what? Do not be afraid. Do you know why? God calls us to faith, not fear. And you know what faith entails for some of us? Just be honest. Faith for some of us is called Abraham. Looking around going, this means I'm leaving my people, my family, my people groups, everything that I know, everything that I'm familiar. I'm going to venture out into a territory of unknown, unfamiliar. And yes, my incompetencies are going to be exposed. And yes, I'm not going to quite know what to do. And yes, I'm not going to quite feel in control because that's how we feel when we're in unfamiliar environments. And yet, God says, that's the exact thing that I'm going to use to stretch your faith. Question. Are you in a safe, homogenous, comfortable environment? Question. Are you in a safe, comfortable environment? To a group of people who just wanted to stick together in the comfort of their safe, homogenous existence at the expense of God's mandate to be a blessing to all the nations, God says, my redemption, my salvation for all the nations. I need you to move out. I need you to scatter. Church, you and I have been given a multiethnic, multicultural directive. Jesus' last word was, "Make disciples of all nations, all nations, ta ethne, all people groups." How the heck do you even begin to make disciples of all people groups if you don't even know anybody of another people group? How the heck do you and I begin to make disciples of all people groups if you and I don't even have relationships with someone of another people group? How? Here's the question we're walking away with today. Are you living in Babel? And this is not some, you know, existential, am I living in Babel? (laughs) No. It's practical. Look at your friends. Look at your relationships. Look who you're sitting next to. Look who you came to. Uh, Okay, list of questions on whether you're living in Babel. Check this out. Are you, do you come to church with people just like you? Next question. Do you leave church with people just like you? Next question. Are you sitting right now with people just like you? Next question. Do words first, different, difficult describe your relationship? Next question. Are you regularly praying with anyone not like you? Next question. Do you seek out mentors of different race, culture, gender, and ethnicity? Next question. Do you acknowledge we live in a culture influenced by race and class? Next question. Do you speak up when others stereotype people of other race, ethnicity, and culture? Culture. I said this last week. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. Yeah, you know, I'm preaching on it a couple of times, but you know, and it, I, it, we just talk, talk, talk. Forms, forms, forms. But at the end of the day, reconciliation will not happen unless you're willing to cross the divide and enter into Christ-centered kingdom mindset of deep, authentic relationships. And I'm asking you this question again. Can you point to how you have been fundamentally changed as a result of someone who is not like you? How you see God, how you see the Bible, how you pray how you raise your family, how you do relationships. Can you say that you've been fundamentally changed? And for those of us going, hey man, we're going to talk about like systemic injustice and racism of systemic. I'm going to talk about that two weeks, but you know what? It's when you begin to care about people that you start caring about the situations that they're in. So before you start talking conceptually about institutional this and that, and it's when you deeply care about people. That your heart gets broken by the situations that affect them. You want to be an effective racial reconciler? You want to affect healing in this country? It doesn't begin by having idealistic conceptual ideas of what you're going to do. It begins with you saying, I don't know you or anything about you. I don't even care, frankly. But I want to care. You make it so hard. Do you really believe that you need people of different race, ethnicity? Do you really believe that you need people? I'm end with these questions. Do you really believe that it's critical to getting closer to God? Do you really believe that it's critical for living the Christian life? Do you really believe that it's critical for the testimony of the gospel? Next question. Do you are you willing to create space for it? Next question. Am I willing to enter into discomfort for it? Next question. Am I willing to sacrifice time, effort, energy, resources, and house? I performed a wedding. And some of you have already heard this story. Michael's got a grin on his face. I think it was like Red Wing, Minnesota. It was like years ago. It was a young white couple in our church that would get married. She's from there. Just FYI, I feel really uncomfortable when I'm like in all white settings, you know. So for me, like getting out of Babel is like going doing those kinds of things. Small town, small town, white America kind of scare me. I'm just being honest. So after I performed the wedding, it was a small church and, you know, they were lined up the, uh, outside of the church and they were greeting, you know. People and I was greeting people, and of course, you know, people came. Oh, thank you, Pastor. That was a really nice sermon. Thank you. That was wonderful, beautiful ceremony. And this old, short, white gentleman, just cute as cute can be, came up and he's like, Oh, Pastor, that was wonderful. Thank you. I have a question. Yes. Do you know Mr. Chang? <laughs> <laughs> well. You know Mr. Chang, he owns a Chinese restaurant in town. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you, that's how I responded. Well, yes, I do actually. <laughs> Mr. Chang and I go way back from the good old country. My friends, we're tight, we tight. My wife is giving me like looks that could kill, you know, if looks that kill. He passed by. It's funny when a, a white gentleman in his 70s who lived in a small town, white America, says something like that. But it's not when you and I who live in this city because of our choice to live in Babel and our safe, homogenous, comfortable existence At the expense of fulfilling God's mission, choose comfort, ease, familiarity. Let's pray together.